turn, if you will, I'm going to uh, be in Philippians 2, but I want to read to you a verse out of 2 Samuel 22 that I think really sprung me into Philippians at this Christmas time. David is writing a song thanking God for how God has led him, kept him, overcome his enemies, all that he's been through. And he says something in Psalms 18 as well as 2 Samuel 22. He says something in verse 36. Listen to it. I'm using an NIV today because the Philippians passage is so amplified by it. Verse 36, you make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. Is that what your Bible says? Get that? Do you, do you, does your Bible have a footnote on uh, your help? Anybody have a footnote? Okay. I've read in some translations, it, it reads, you stoop down to make me great. And so I was curious about that. I looked it up. It's the Hebrew word to bow down, to be humbled, to be afflicted. And so what David is saying, he's giving tribute to God, you stoop down to this boy you took from the sheepfold, this boy that his own dad didn't call to the roll call when Samuel came down and said, I'm looking for someone to put in the office. I'm going to anoint someone. His own dad said, I don't have any more boys. And Samuel said, you've got to have another boy. Nobody's come in front of me so far as the man. And contrary to everything, Jesse's baby boy comes out, uh, not even called to the roll call. He's out here. David said, I've survived a thousand arrows, a thousand enemies, and I'm on the throne of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And the reason it is, is he stooped down to make me great. He came down. Now, let's look at the New Testament, what it says. We go to Philippians 2, and I begin at verse 1, where Paul, in a book where he's writing it from a prison cell, is talking about the joy he has in God as a believer, which tells you your joy shouldn't be based on your circumstances. It ought to be based on something deeper than that. And he's exhorting this church. They must be having a little bit of fussing going on among them. Something uh, any church needs this kind of exhortation. And look what he does. In the midst of exhorting the church to the kind of community attitude we ought to have toward one another, in exhorting them, he goes to this grand theology that he begins to... It's a regular song that was written in verses 5 through 11, really. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8. But he says this to this community of believers. How are you thinking? How do you think towards one another? Uh, what do you think about yourself? What do you think about others, brother, sister, the community you're in? Uh, what do you think about God? And he's going to say, 
I'm going to tell you how God wants you to think. You know, I think how we think about ourselves. We either, uh, we could be groveling. We could uh, uh, be a person, I have no worth. And we could just bury ourselves. Or we could be, uh, we think we're better than everybody else. And then you start, because when you look at yourself, do you see yourself better than everybody else? Uh, equal to everybody else, less, whatever. Then what do you think about people? Well, everybody's an idiot. Nobody's smart as me. Nobody's this as me. Nobody else. You, know, you start knocking people. They're not this. They're not that. And here we go. Degrading. That's why we love gossip. We love to make the other person look bad because that makes us look good. And so it's a, it's a dangerous uh, trap to fall into. Did you know what? He could be the worst person in the world. It doesn't make you any better. I mean, you're, you're still what you are, and maybe you need to make some improvements, but as long as I'm reading the one at list over here, I look pretty good. See? And then what do you think of God? Tozer said the greatest thing that is revealed about a man is what he thinks of God. When God comes up, what image does he come up with? So listen to what he says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and it's an if that is a sense idea, since you really have been encouraged by being united with Christ, since there is comfort from his love, since you're holding common the Holy Spirit, you all share in the Spirit, since you've tasted of the tenderness and compassion of God, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. A lot of people are afraid of that. Are you like-minded with fellow believers or one's a Democrat and another's a Republican? Is that what the like-mindedness is? That we're all dittos of each other's thinking? No, no. Uh, that we all buy the same kind of car? We'd all fight over the same woman because we all like the same gal. No, no. He's not talking about dittos. He's not talking about we all have to think the same thing about life in general. But as the believing community, when you have these things in common, the Spirit, the tenderness of God, the compassion of God. God, God has loved us all to the same degree. We are a redeemed community. We ought to be thinking with that kind of, God sure loves you. God has put his spirit in you. God has pulled you out. Instead of running down, devaluing, why don't we start thinking more like how God thinks of each other? How does God value that person? So, he goes on to say, uh, I wish you'd be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Then he's counteracting these negative attitudes. This is what he doesn't want us to do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, and you want to pause and laugh. Who do you know? that is being motivated by anything but ambition for themselves as a whole. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Hey, I'm here for me. I'm not here for you. 
what's in it for me? And he says, I, I don't want you to do anything out of selfish ambition. And this word literally meant to politic for votes. That's the way the word was used. It was to party for votes, to get a following, to get your way. It goes on, or vain conceit, and it means empty. It's just uh, a swollen head over false appraisal of yourself. He goes on, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. This is so convicting. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Now, as soon as you read that, you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every group, every religion has a bunch of moralisms. You ought to do this. This is nice. Oh, that's a nice little phrase. And you say, you know what the other religions don't have? They can make up moral codes, but they don't have a Savior. They don't have anyone in their system that models what he just exhorted. And above all, who could call their God forward and say, my God will teach you to be humble. My God will teach you to live for others and not for himself. You got to be kidding. To be God is everything's for you. You bring a sacrifice for me. You bring something for me. And all of a sudden, he's going to reveal this God. This is not a getting God. This is a giving God. He, he dispossessed himself of everything he can give to reach us. Now he starts in verses 5 through eight, really the whole, ver, uh, through verse 11. But he's going to start telling us how God it wants us to think. He commands it in verse 5. Let this attitude be in you. The let is weak. It's an imperative. I'm commanding you. Be thinking this way all the time. Think this way. What way? Well, you heard me just exhort you, but he doesn't go there. I'm commanding you to think just like your Savior. Think like he thought. All right. Since I can't mind read, how, was, how did Christ think about himself? And he goes back to his preexistence, and he starts telling you something. He said, first of all, who being in very nature God, I like that translation, because the word form, he was in the form of God. Form is a Greek word that means to have the essential qualities of whatever you say it's in the form of. He's going to use this of the slave, and he had the essential qualities of a slave, and he had the essential qualities of God. Why? Because he is God, and he's had all the qualities of being God, and in very nature, he's that way. And notice, he did not consider this equality with God something that he would take advantage of. And there's various translations. Robbery, which is not even close to this. Common one is to grasp. He, he didn't try to hold on to being God. He can never cease to be God. He's already God. But what did he do? I am not a self-aggrandizing God. I'm not a God living to get myself more. I'm not living to conquer more. I've already got it all. You can't get any higher than I am. I am the creator supreme being. 
But in me, you'll find the attitude I want you to live among people with. And what is that, God? In eternity past, made stars, planets, universes. What, how did you think? There's never been a time from eternity on that I was out to gain more for myself. Never. From eternity past, there was no self-getting in me, no conceit in me. I didn't exist for myself. I'm not a getting, grasping God. I'm a giving God. And he goes on. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now, how do you make yourself nothing? How can you cease to be what you are? How do I say, well, I just want to be nothing? A guy came to Howard Hendricks years ago and said, Howie, pray the Lord would just make me nothing. And Hendricks said, take it by faith, man. You are nothing. <laughs> take it by faith. You're so impressed with yourself. Just pray I'll be nothing. Take it by faith. He said he emptied himself and the debate, there are pa there's commentaries that will spend 100 pages just discussing verse 5 through 8. 100 pages. Great scholars. They've debated over the word that's known as kenosis. It's a word that means to empty. I like the translation that the NIV gives to it. He made himself nothing. The idea is this. By the time Christ completed his earthly journey, and he goes back to heaven, I think what the better illustration is, because theologians ask, what did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his attributes? Did he empty him? It, it doesn't qualify. Does it need an adjective? Does it need to be qualified? What he's saying is, by the time I went back to heaven as a person, there was nothing left in the bottle. Everything I could pour out for a lost world to show them I love them and I'm willing to be spent for them. When I got back to heaven, I was empty. There's nothing left. I just, I was poured out. I didn't hold back a drop. I'm the emptying God. I'm the God who poured myself into coming to mankind. I knew I'd be rejected before I came. Matter of fact, I knew I'd be slain because I knew from the foundation of the world, if I go to them, they're going to kill me. I know that. You know, the landowner, it was time to collect the rent, and he sent his servants. And the first time, they beat up a few. The second time, they killed guys. And finally, the owner of the property trying to get his rent, he said, oh, there's a big mistake going on. They don't understand. I'll send my son, and when the heir comes, they'll surely pay the rent to him. And they killed him and threw him outside the vineyard. And it says here, I want a mission to be emptied. You don't know if this kind of philosophy could survive American living, the human race. 
dog eat dog. Beat the competition. Beat. Be better. Beat. Show them. You can't do that to me. I, I see people. You know what's the biggest problem with men is pride. This proverb says all contentions come out of pride. Pride. I didn't get my way. I didn't get my view. I didn't get, well, why is everything you? Why is it me? Because we're, we're born conceited from the womb. We're born in a selfish world. Just watch kids in the nursery. I mean, I, I, you know, we've raising children, especially grandchildren. Just, you can have 10 toys around, and if a child comes in there, you think about sharing. Not the, no, it's the hoarding starts and protecting what's mine. All of, where did you get that? It's innate to human nature to get, to be better. To be poured out, you've got to be kidding. And yet he said, I want you to think like Christ. His thinking is the only one kind of thinking that can run a Christian community of believers. And believers are not always easy to get along with. Look at yourself. That's why marriage is so hard on us. We get a mirror that is hard, that reflects back things we don't want to know about us. See, most people don't know themselves, and they really don't want to know the truth about themselves. They just want to be flattered. That's why we have so few friends. Friends give permission to tell the truth. They say, no thanks, flattery will do. Flattery will do. Who will you allow in your life to tell you the truth and not write them off? And that's what the hardest part of married life. You see people going in with, you know, stars in their eyes, and within six months, it's sand in their eyes. And they say, wow, what done happened to this chick I was dating? She's telling you the truth. You've got ways of doing things that just drive her crazy. Unless you beat her or suppress her, and pretty soon you see those marriages where the one partner's been closed down, you dare not say what I don't want to hear. And we call that marriage. No, it's, uh, it's oppression. He said, uh, being found in his humility, what did he do? He made himself nothing. Well, how, how does that look like? He took the nature of a slave. It's stronger than just servant. They had two kinds of servants. They had paid servants, and you had owned slaves. A hundred million slaves uh, wasn't American slavery. Many times the slaves were the tutors of your children. They could run your estate. Sometimes they could become the heir of the estate because they brought many brilliant people from the nations they conquered. They brought them to Rome, brought them to the headquarters turned them into servants, teachers. So there was some dignity, but they still were owned. They didn't get to vote. The will of the master determined their existence and what they did. And so it's the idea that even Paul said, first of all, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ and an apostle in the will of God. Let me ask you and I, 
if we were to write down a biography of you, could we start it off as saying, uh, so-and-so, first characteristic, owned, controlled, guided, instructed, serving as a slave owned by Jesus Christ. Would that describe you? It ought to be the description of every one of us. Don't, don't call him pastor. That's a spiritual gift and function in this body. It ought to be, first of all, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I? Am I that way my attitude, or am I a reverend that I demand a lot of respect? Oh, baloney. Keep your titles. Keep your titles. Keep your man worship to yourself. I'm going to stand before him. He's going to ask, did you act like a pompous, uh, superior clergyman, or did you live like a owned, bought man at the cross? Are you owned? Who do you belong to? Clergy titles are worthless in that day. It's does he own you? And here Christ says, I came to do the will of the Father. I'm simply a servant. And it comes right out of Isaiah 40, about 45 to 55. He's described as the suffering, serving, servant, slave of God. He said, I made myself nothing. He told the disciples, don't follow me if you ever want to get wealthy. I don't have any place to sleep. Jesus was homeless most of the time. He went to Mary and Martha's house and Lazarus. They kept him the most probably. He had no house. He said, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I have nowhere. For Let's go to uh, Gethsemane. We can sleep there tonight under the olive trees. This is God on the earth, homeless. God. He's a scandal to own him in the Greek world of this day. This is your God? You can't even own a piece of property? And when it comes time for him to die, the only thing he had worth gambling over was the garment his mother made. Surely, God, you know more about finances than that. I didn't come to be rich. Matter of fact, I gave up my riches and took on poverty that I might make you rich. He became poor that he might make you rich. Everything I've got coming with heaven and everything I got in salvation, I got through the poverty of the Son of God. Nothing more miserable than counting money and not having a relationship with anybody you love. And here God said, I had all that, but you were worth more to me than staying there. I came, I came down, I came down to rescue you. This is what Christmas is all about. And he goes from eternity past to his becoming human in time. And then he said, he was made in human likeness. Romans 8, 3 said he's like us but apart from sin. And he was found in appearance as a man. When you saw Jesus, you didn't see a ghost. You didn't see a phantom. You didn't see elephant man. 
You saw a real man. You saw real humanity. What did he do in that humanity? He humbled himself. Jesus, is it not enough that you just came down? Now that you're a man, that's low enough. It's like a human being becoming an ant, and then the ant says, well, I'm willing to humble myself. Well, what more can you do? How far down can you go? He said, "Um, I've already chosen and volunteered to die a criminal's death. What? You see... To die the death he died, he said, nobody can take my, my life from me. I can't die unless I'm willing, willing to. He told angels, stay back. I don't need your help. He, he told Pilate, uh, you've only got a little bit of authority, but my ultimate destiny is in my Father's hand. Well, if you've got all that power and authority, surely you don't have to be put on death row by the Roman Empire. And according to 1 Corinthians One, the Jews and the Greeks were stumbling over the scandal of the cross. It was a scandalia, the Greek word scandalon, just to trip you. said the cross is full of scandal. I must tell you, you don't want Christ unless you're willing to accept his shame. You don't want Christ. You don't want Christ unless, says, if this is what this Christ is all about, This is the price for my eternal salvation. God doesn't butter him up, make him look like some rock star. No, he's the only one in all the universe that divested himself to save you. No one else. No one else. Cicero said of crucifixion, see, Jesus didn't die of pneumonia. He didn't die of a broken neck. He died a horrendous, you see, the kind of death he died, he knew was scandalous. How can God be crucified by men? Well, I have to become a man. I have to be willing to empty myself. I'm willing to humble myself. Now, he's telling the church, why don't you think this way about each other? Why does it strain you, strain you? To be kind to a brother, to a sister, is the thinking of Christ in you? Are you in it for what you can get? If you don't like the music, if you don't like the everything is I'm a consumer. You gotta, you gotta, I'm checking off this church. I didn't come here to be thinking like this. Meet my needs, do something to me, I'll find another church. The church hunting model of America. That's why so few pioneer churches, they're not willing to be poured out when there's no glory and honor to a Holy Ghost hall, a dumpy-sided town, nothing. I mean, just to say, we'll meet you at Holy Ghost Hall. That's the name of your building? Yeah. Yeah. Skunks under it. Ball games roaring. Come on. What are you doing in a dumpy place? What are you doing at the Rio Theater? You can't have a congregation. Well, you can't have consumers, but you can have servants. Cicero said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. Thank you. 
To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Cicero, one of the early Greek philosophers. And yet, he came down. He came down. Uh, Benjamin Warfield, a great theologian, once said, we have a God capable of sacrifice. We had a God that uh, there was no easy way to, you know, you think because he's deity, he can get out of the pain of it. Come on. I don't think I'm worth that much. I really not. I wouldn't die for me. God, can't you get me there some other way? He said, no other way have I decided but to come down, to be poured out, to let my son be emptied. And what gets me, this way of thinking goes all the way back. And then we pick up you and I and the trivialing things that we get to going, our ambitions, our way, my will, my view, my my, my. I read something, and I read it to you in closing, that uh, George Whitfield, George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, they got into a battle. It grieved George Whitfield because Whitfield was a Calvinist, and uh, Wesley was Arminian, but they had both gone to school in Oxford, and uh, Wesley was older than Whitfield. Whitfield used to shine the shoes of the uh, Wesley brothers at Oxford. He was the poor boy. But he was the one that uh, was saved first, began to preach in fields, began to rock England. They, they believed that the preaching of George Whitfield and the Wesleys kept England from having what happened in France just across the peninsula and Louis Fourteenth, and all that happened bringing uh, Marie Antoinette and all of them down, the slaughter, the, the outrage. They say the revival that swept through England restrained the English people. And uh, they got into a debate. The papers were always playing them one against the other. And uh, one day they asked George Whitfield if he thought he would ever see Wesley when he got to heaven. He said, I doubt it. I don't think I'll see him. Newspapers loved it, ate it up, put it in print. And they said, and, and George, why do you feel you won't see him? He said, I think he'll be so much nearer to the throne than me that it's unlikely I'll ever see him. And he never did give up his theology. And he wrote these words. Oh, that I may learn from all I see to, to desire to be nothing. Now, this is the greatest preaching. Uh, they say no one has superseded Whitfield in the 17th century as a preacher. Thousands. And black people should love George Whitfield. I went to Savannah, Georgia to see the black orphanage he started. He was one of the first white men on the soil of America 
to tell black people they had a soul. And black men picking cotton in the fields of Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi heard this white Oxford-trained preacher from England coming over and say, you're no monkey, you're no animal, and you're not just a slave. You're someone God gave his son for. You've got a soul. You can go to heaven. And he started an orphanage for him, and I made my girl drive me down so I could see it. And he says this, Oh, that I may learn from all I see to desire to be nothing and to think it my highest privilege to be an assistant to all but the head of none. I find a love of power sometimes intoxicates even God's own dear children and makes them to mistake passion for zeal and an overbearing spirit for an authority given them from above. For my own part, I find it much easier to obey than to govern. That is much safer to be trodden underfoot than to have it in one's power to serve people in a great position. I just want to be a slave. Is your ambition to be a slave? Whether that's an administration, a businessman serving God, that he may honor God with his gain, honor him. What, what's your life's ambition? He said, I wish, I wish you'd start thinking like the Savior. That's the template. We're not told to do miracles like Jesus. We're not told to walk on the Sea of Galilee. We're not told to do half the things Jesus did. But he said, but I do command you, think like Jesus about yourself, about others, about your God. At Christmas, let's remember what God thought when Jesus came. I am going to empty myself that I might populate heaven. And that's what he did. He came down. Our Father, I thank you that I'm going up because he came down. I'm going to be in heaven because he's willing to bear my hell. He came to the ghetto of this universe, to a Roman colony ruled and governed austerely by the Romans, but he came down. He emptied himself, all for me, all for me. I bless your name forever. We will bow and praise the Lamb forever and ever that he would empty himself for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.